Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where the New Orleans Saints received some divine intervention over the, week, over the Jacksonville Jaguars with a tweet from His Holiness Pope Francis and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where the Arkansas Wolves Football Club will take the field against the Dallas City Lions Football Club. The two soccer teams will play Saturday at 6 p.m. at Scott Field in Little Rock. Tonight, in episode 34, we're concluding our discussion of State of Oklahoma versus Richard Eugene Glossop. In part two, we'll discuss the January 1997 murder of Barry Van Treese, a hotel owner in Oklahoma City who employed Glossop as a manager of the property. We'll discuss Glossop's post-conviction claims, the outcome of his state and federal court review since his conviction in 2004, his execution dates, states of execution, and the status of executions in Oklahoma. We're a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. Good evening, Michael. How are you? Good evening, Lisa. I'm good doing pretty Lisa. good. I'm doing uh, pretty good. Uh, I don't know if you have me on uh, speaker uh, or what, but you know, I got a pretty gnarly feedback. feedback. I'm using my headphones. Huh. Yeah, I've got a pretty, I've got a pretty good feedback. I can hear everything I said with a pretty good delay. Now it's gone. Okay. So um, I have a. I, I had to move my phone. Um, I told you last week our mouse died. Uh-huh. And uh, my father had gotten a wireless mouse years ago, but he didn't like it, so we just had the old wired mouse. I replaced it with the wireless mouse. I didn't have any problem with my call with Roberta this weekend, though. But that was on Skype. Okay. Okay, yeah, definitely. Well, whatever you did works. So, I mean, that's definitely a good thing. But I was sitting there listening to uh I was sitting there listening to the right place wrong time twice. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I guess um just remind me to make sure I put it on the desk and not the keyboard tray. Okay. <laughs> 
had an interesting uh, conversation before uh, before we hopped on the air here tonight, but uh, we're going to let that one play out, I'm sure, before we even begin to discuss it on the air. So, uh, let's yes, go ahead and talk I. About our okay, well, the updates uh, we have one update that I did not even see until after I'd finalized the stuff I sent you on Sedley Alley. The request for post-execution DNA testing was heard in Shelby County Criminal Court on Monday. Uh, Both Allie's daughter and her attorneys and the attorneys for the state of Tennessee have argued, or the Shelby County actually, uh, have argued their case. Uh, The judge, I believe her name is Paula Scahan, um, she will decide by November 18th okay. on whether or not Allie's daughter is entitled to post-execution DNA testing. Um, and next week I'll have a little bit more information about the hearing. I found out about this just as I was getting ready to leave the office today. Mm-hmm. So, but I'll have, I'll talk about it a little bit more uh, next week. Okay. And then Jody Arias, oral argument of her appeal of her 2013 uh, first-degree murder conviction and 2015 life sentence without the possibility of parole uh, is set for Thursday, October 17, 2019, at the Arizona Court of Criminal Appeals. I think it's the first district. Uh, that can be streamed live. And there are several articles that tell you how to do that. Okay. And then um, everybody mark your calendars. Uh, October 14th or October 7th or October 10th. I was wrong. Uh, Surprising me, (laughs) Kathleen Zellner did not come up with new um, claims that needed to go back to the trial court for Stephen Avery. Uh She actually filed Stephen Avery's appellant brief with the Wisconsin Court of Appeals. So his... um, his appeal is now in the works. <clears throat> okay. Um, I don't know the date that the state response is due, but I will find that out and report that one next week as well. And then okay. finally on Rodney Reed, of course, Dr. Phil episode, um, basically – not surprisingly, uh, it only reported the pro-innocent side, uh, was very sparse and dismissive on the uh, guilt side, and basically Dr. Phil took everything that Rodney Reed said and didn't uh-huh. fact check it. So okay. um, that, uh, you know, that's another court of public opinion because they can't win in the courts. 
Okay. And in his case in the in the uh, federal civil rights claim relating to denial of DNA testing, the answer the state's answer to his amended complaint, which was filed last week, and a response to his motion to stay the execution is due was due today. Uh, it had not been filed or posted by the time I left the office, so I'll keep an eye on that. And also the state's opposition to his writ at the U.S. Supreme Court is due on October 28th. Okay. Hmm. So, and I think, as I said, I think he likely – on one or the other of these claims, he likely will get a stay of that November 20th date. Okay. But um, it may be the civil rights claim because even if the judge were to rule tomorrow on the state's motions to dismiss, there's still the appellate process in the Fifth Circuit. Uh-huh. And that takes time. They're not going to accelerate it, and I, Reed's attorneys would not probably let them accelerate it <laughs> to uh, dispose of it before November 20th. Okay, well. So um, it may be this one will get stayed, but once everything that he's filed is resolved, the state can request another date and get another date and he should have he should have filed and argued everything there is to argue. Mhm. By this point after 22 years. Yeah, 21 right. years, excuse me. <laughs> so, um so that's all on the everything else. Um Syed nothing's been filed yet by Maryland in the Supreme Court, so we're waiting on that. I think that's due next week. Okay. All right, so oh. let's get back to Richard Eugene Glossop. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> um, just to recap part one, uh, Barry Ventrice owned two or possibly even three motels because I found references to a third motel. Um, One was in Oklahoma City and that one was being managed by Richard Glossop. The second one was in Tulsa, Oklahoma and at the time of Barry Ventry's murder, it was being managed by a gentleman by the name of William Bender. During the last six months of 1996, Mr. Ventry's had couple deaths in the family and was dealing with the fallout from those problems and so he was not going to the motels as frequently as he did before to collect receipts and do the accounting and keep the books and keep up with the um, keep up with the properties and keep an eye on what the managers were doing. At the Oklahoma City property, during this six-month period, uh, apparently there were shortages of about $6,000 uh, 
from the receipts being collected by Mr. Vantrese. And the Vantreses believed that the shortages were due to Richard Glossop skimming a little here and a little there. Um, mm-hmm. Because the motels were a cash business. They didn't do credit cards. They didn't take personal checks. They took cash and traveler's checks. And okay. uh, one one uh, journalist, so-called journalist, argued, well, this is a cash business. Why wouldn't he just gather the money up for a couple of days and then get in his car and take off? He was too honest to steal. Well, no, if you get you know several thousand dollars or $10,000 or whatever – and take off, the cops are going to be looking for your ass right. in a very short time. So if you stay put and you just take a little here and there, maybe nobody notices. And if you get caught, maybe you can talk your way out of trouble. And seeing Richard Glossop's interviews with Joe Berlinger, I believe that that is exactly what Richard Glossop's mindset was. He could blame it on somebody else. He could try to convince somebody that that what they thought wasn't really true, and everything would be hunky-dory again. So there were other problems at the motel aside from the missing money. Um, Richard Glossop was allowing multiple people to stay in the motel without registering and presumably without paying or paying him under the table and not paying the motel. Really? Um, And as we discussed last week, in a 54-room motel, only 24 rooms could be rented out. The other 30 rooms were uninhabitable. 12 rooms had no heat. Damn. The rooms were filthy, Repairs that were supposed to have been made were not made. Renovations for the handicap room, one of the handicap rooms, had not been done. Um, I read in one brief that Mr. Vantrese believed that he was buying materials to do renovation and repair, and Richard Glossop was selling those materials. And pocketing the money for them, and then not doing the repairs. Dang. And with Mr. Ben Treese only coming to the property four times in about six months, he did not see how bad things were getting at the property. Mm-hmm. At the end of 1996, Mr. Van Treese talked to Billy Hooper, who was a desk clerk. She talked to him about some of the concerns she had about Glossop and his management style, and he promised Miss Hooper that he would take care of this, this, you know, take care of this after Christmas. On January 6th, he traveled to Oklahoma City from Lawton, Oklahoma, which we established is about an hour and a half. Right. Right. He arrived an around 6 p.m. And he uh, sat down, collected the receipts, the money, um, did the books, did the payroll, 
And I believe, even though no one witnessed it and no one can corroborate that belief, that Mr. Van Treese and Richard Glossop had a sit-down and what we in the South like to call a come-to-Jesus meeting. Right. Um, We do have some corroboration in that Mr. Van Treese told William Bender in Tulsa that he was giving Glossop until he returned to Oklahoma City to come up with the missing receipts, i.e. money. And then he would give him a week to come up with missing registration cards for the rooms and um, get all the year-end receipts in order. And if Glossop didn't do that, Mr. Van Treese said he was going to fire him and call the police. Yeah. So, um, you know, because Glossop is responsible for the conditions. He was the manager. He was in charge. One of the guests who, more likely than not, was occupying a room and not paying for it or paying Glossop for it was his drug dealer boat, Brother Bobby. Um, Hmm. Another person, she worked at the Sinclair Station. Her name is Kayla Pursley. She was also staying in the hotel with her husband and children. I'm not sure that they were paying the room rent to Mr. Van Treese if they were paying at all. And while Barry right. Van Treese was could be generous and would allow people down on their luck to stay for free, it wouldn't be indefinite. And it was his hotel. It was up to him whether that happened. Right, makes sense. So, um, so there there was a lot going on. Apparently, Glossop probably knew that the shit was about to hit the fan because he had been trying to get Justin Sneed, who was a maintenance man, also occupying a room and not paying for it, um, to kill Mr. Van Treese because Glossop believed that if Mr. Van Treese was out of the picture, Glossop could talk the widow Van Treese into allowing... Richard to run the Oklahoma City and Tulsa properties. And I believe in Glossop's mind, he thought then we are all going we are going to be rolling in the dough. Yeah. And so um on the night of January 6th, after Mr. Van Trees finishes in Oklahoma City, he drives to Tulsa. And from the testimony of William Bender, during the drive to Tulsa, he was thinking about the situation in Oklahoma City. And as one does when they're on a drive and they're thinking about something that bothers them, by the time he got to Tulsa, he was madder than Mr. Bender had ever seen him before. And he got the receipts from Tulsa. He checked the rooms because he wanted to make sure Bender wasn't doing what Glossop was doing. 
And that was when he told Bender that he would go when he went back to Oklahoma City. Richard Glossop was going to come up with money, and then he was going to get those registration cards, and he was going to get the year-end books in order, or he was going to call the cops. At about 3 o'clock in the morning, Justin Sneed said that Glossop either called him, came to his room and knocked on the door, or let himself into the room. And the the crux, the more important detail from Justin Sneed regarding these events is that that was when Glossop said, you've got to kill Van Treese. He's going to fire me. You won't have anywhere to live. So it's got to go. It's got to happen tonight. And then just to sweeten the pot, I'll pay you $10,000. Or maybe he said, I'll pay you $7,000. Justin Sneed still has reservations, so Glossop leaves. Justin goes and gets a drink and a snack, comes back to his room, and then he says, okay, I'll I'll just do it. Gets a baseball bat, goes to room 102 where uh, Mr. Vantrese is sleeping for the night, enters the room with the master key, and beats Mr. Vantrese to death. He goes back to his room, leaving the bat and his knife in Mr. Vantrese's room, goes back to his room, takes off his bloody clothes, hides them in a popcorn tin, takes a shower, changes into clean clothes, goes to Richard Glossop's apartment behind the manager's office, and lets him know that he went ahead and he killed Barry Vantrese. Tells him there's a broken window, which Glossop tells him to go clean up. Glossop tells him to tell people, if they ask, that Barry rented the room to two drunk cowboys last night, and they got in a fight and broke the window, and you and I had to throw them off the property. Then um, Glossop goes back to bed for a little while, but then he's up bright and early. Because Billy Hooper, who'd never seen him up in the morning, said he was up unusually early. He tells ba- uh, Billy that Mr. Van Treese got up early, about 7.30 or 7 or 8, and went to get breakfast, and then he was going to buy supplies to start doing renovations. Even though he knows Van Treese is dead, because Justin Sneed told him, Of course, according to his version, he didn't think Justin was serious. Um, then Justin uh, Justin Sneed gets a thing of a sheet of plexiglass, and he and Richard Glossop put that over the window of room 102 until somebody can come out and fix the broken window. Um, another factor that um, doesn't get mentioned is that the money under the seat of Barry Ventrice's vehicle, Richard Glossop is the one that told Justin Steed that the money was there and had to send Justin to get the money and to dump the car in the bank parking lot. And uh, then when Justin gets the money 
and brings it back to his room, Glossop is there waiting to split the money with him. Right. And there is no evidence at all, no testimony from anyone that Justin Sneed knew Vantrese, had any reason to kill him, or knew that he kept money in the under the front seat of his car. And right, that's where the Oklahoma right. City receipts had gone. So um Glossop once they find Vantrese's car, Glossop tells Sneed to beat feet and get the hell off the property. So Justin leaves, goes and finds the roofing crew he was working with, and gets back on with the roofing crew. In the meantime, Glossop is there telling different stories, keeping people from going anywhere near room 102, where he knows Barry Fantry's dead body is. Okay. For 17 hours, Glossop kept Vantrese's body from being found. Mm-hmm. He lied to Cliff Everhard. He lied to Billy Hooper. He lied to Kayla. Uh, he lied not to Kayla. He lied to the uh, cleaning lady. I think her last name was Williams or Williamson. He lied to um, the police. When they came after the car was found and they're now looking for Barry Vantrese, he lied to Mr. Vantrese's wife because she called, worried about him, because he's he'd become diabetic. Right. And so, you know, there was a concern when he'd been gone for several hours and nobody knew where he was. Um, and I think she probably feared that he had some kind of medical emergency and he was in trouble somewhere. And he lied to her about where her husband was. So, um, because he keeps telling the story about him getting up early in the morning, even though Mr. Van Treese was not known as an early riser, and going to get breakfast and buy supplies to do renovations. And, you know, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and he's not back. It's 10 o'clock in the morning, and he's not back. 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock. I think the car was found sometime around 3. Um, so, uh, once the body's found at 1030 that night, uh, the police know they've heard all the inconsistent statements from Glossop, from the various witnesses and Glossop himself. So they bring him in for questioning and he denies knowing anything about anything about anything. He gives, uh, Justin Taylor as Justin Sneed's name, even though I believe that he knew Justin's last name was not Taylor. Okay. Um, Police know that there's more to the story. And while Glossop wanted to talk, he just didn't want to talk about the murder. He wanted to talk about how this wasn't fair to him and you know, I don't know why you're asking me this. I don't know anything. I, if I knew anything, I would tell you. I would never hurt Mr. Vantrese. I've done all the things I've done for him. I've, I've, you know, turned this place around and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So they don't have enough to hold him, so they let him go. 
Glossop returns to the motel and starts selling all of his belongings. But, you know, he's living in a motel in Oklahoma City. He has some furniture. He has a big screen TV, He ha- which I wonder how he afforded. He has a fish tank. He sells all those things off. And all the proceeds from all of that are about $500. He claims that someone from Vantrese's family uh, encouraged him to not speak to police without an attorney present. So he contacts an attorney and goes to the attorney's office to meet with him. But for some strange reason known only to Richard Glossop, he does not retain the attorney at that time. Even though he's got $1,757 burning a hole in his pocket. When Mr. Glossop leaves the attorney's office because he missed a scheduled meeting with police that day, they pick him up, they bring him in for questioning, they seize the $1,700, and this time when they question him, he waives the presence of attorney and then talks, but giving only a version of the story that would make him guilty as an accessory after the fact. He even helpfully tells police that, you know, Justin once suggested that we stage a robbery at the motel. So maybe this is something to do with that. Right, right. So, um, and I think one of the things that often gets lost when cases get the media attention is these facts from the crime that are have been established at trial make it very difficult to overcome guilt. What Glossop is doing, everything is consciousness of guilt. He's preventing people from going to room 102 and finding Vantrese immediately. Huh. He's telling Justin Sneed to leave when Vantrese's vehicle is found. And then he's selling his belongings and telling Chris Everhart, uh, Cliff Everhart that he's going to be moving on now. Hmm. Okay. So uh, those are all consciousness of guilt. Those are all yeah. Richard Glossop's words and actions. In addition to the poor job he did as manager of the Best Budget Inn in Oklahoma City during the last six months of 1996. Um, So he was arrested. Initially, he was charged as an accessory after the fact because that's all he would cop to in his interviews with the police. However, on January 14th, Justin Sneed was arrested and brought in for questioning. And after doing the normal thing initially, of denying having anything to do with Mr. Vantrese's murder or knowing anything about anything about anything, then Justin finally decides this isn't working. Granted, the police are also letting him know, as they should, that Richard Glossop has been throwing him under the bus for two days. 
So finally, Justin Sneed spills the beans. And he talks about Glossop wanting Vantree's dead and why he wanted Vantree's dead. He talks about uh, the offers of money. And he uh, talks about the murder. And then after the murder, um, Glossop went into the room with him to hang a shower curtain over the broken window and told him to turn up the air conditioner. Glossop's the one who told him to go back to the room and get the bat. Glossop's the one who told him to go move the car and take the money from under the seat. Um, And there are statements from Mr. Van Treese and testimony from Donna Van Treese that all support or corroborate the things that Justin said were Glossop's reasons for wanting Mr. Vantrese dead. Mm-hmm. So he, uh, Glossop did have a trial in 1998. Uh, he was convicted, but that conviction and sentence were reversed or vacated. And the case was remanded back to the trial court um, to retry Mr. Glossop because his first attorney, uh, Wayne Fornerat, who was retained by his brother Bobby, did such a poor job at trial that the, the appellate court had no confidence in the, the verdict rendered by the jury. There were several reasons for that. Um, Fornerat was unprepared. He didn't seem to have a cohesive defense strategy. He did a poor job cross-examining witnesses. Uh, The two most important witnesses against Glossop were Justin Sneed and Inspector Bemo. And Fornerat didn't do anything to try and, you know, effectively cross-examine either of those gentlemen. So uh, the case went back to the Oklahoma County Court, and the appellate attorney who wrote the brief that got the case uh, reversed and remanded, G. Lynn Birch, stayed on and was going to represent Richard Glossop at his trial. But apparently during the pretrial period, our preparations, uh, Mr. Birch went to visit Justin Sneed. And, of course, there are two sides to the story. The prosecution side was that Mr. Birch actually threatened Mr. Sneed. Uh-huh. And was perhaps trying to intimidate him into um, recanting his 1998 trial testimony when the prosecution got wind of that of course they went to the court and they argued their their case Mr. Birch defended himself but in the end Mr. Birch Birch was conflicted out and uh, Glossop had two public defenders appointed Birch and another gentleman when Mr. Birch was conflicted out a second attorney 
was appointed to represent Mr. Glossop. And this all happened in 2003, about a year before his retrial was scheduled to start. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked at the docket, and just to, just to say, uh, his second trial, they filed motions in limine, motions trying to get uh, his police statements and his 1998 trial t- testimony um, excluded from the, the new trial. Um, they, I mean, they, they filed every motion under the sun. Some they won, some they lost, um, without going into all of them. Maybe we'll have an episode where I'll just go through the docket and explain to everybody what the motions were. Right. Um, I mean, they, they were zealously representing him. Um, right, right. So they went to trial in 2004, and one of the changes, as we talked about last week, was that instead of getting a lot of Glossop's inconsistent statements in through inspectors Bemo or Cook, the uh, witnesses, William Bender, Billy Hooper, Cliff Everhart, all came in and testified. Uh, another thing I need to point out is that the 1998 trial and conviction, it no longer exists in the scheme of things. Uh-huh. It has absolutely nothing to do with this 2004 trial. It has nothing to do with this current conviction or sentence. It's a nullity. But, of course, the concentration in killing Richard Glossop was not the 2004 trial, but the 1998 trial. They barely right. even mentioned the 2004 trial. Because they want to say he was, the lawyer was so ineffective. He was so horrible. You know, he was doomed from the start. But he wasn't, he's not on death row based on that conviction. He's on on death row from a totally new proceeding that was night and day from the 1998 trial because these attorneys were prepared. And they did do a lot of things to counter the states and test the state's case. And one of the things that they managed to do was they managed to keep their manipulative client from getting up on the stand. Although, unfortunately for him... Some of his testimony from the 1998 trial was admissible in the 2004 trial. So uh, he was convicted. The, The aggravating factor found by the jury in 2004 was that the murder was committed for remuneration or for the promise of remuneration. Which means Glossop hmm, okay. hired someone to kill Barry Ventrice. And again, when in a murder for hire, there is never going to be evidence from the person who contracted the murder at the murder scene. Unless right. 
that person is a sadistic MFer who wants to watch. You know, but Glossop is a little bit smarter than that. I don't think he's as smart as he thinks he is, but he's a little bit smarter than that because when the murder is being committed, he's in his room in bed with his girlfriend. Right. To whom he has promised an expensive car before she's 25, uh, a baby, and a pair of boobs. Hmm. And engagement. Right. So, um, so he's convicted. The direct appeal, um, the issues in the direct appeal were there were some issues with jurors being uh, excluded because they were against the death penalty, um, which the Oklahoma court found that the trial judge was within her discretion to exclude those jurors because, contrary to Mr. Glossop's. Uh, portrayal of the jurors or their statements to the on the record, um, they were unequivocally opposed to the death penalty and unable to consider it as a sentencing option. Um, he also complained about a juror who was dismissed because she was serving time on a deferred sentence at the time of the trial. And apparently she did not disclose this during voir dire. And then only later kind of thought, well, maybe I should have told somebody about this and volunteered it. Um, so she was dismissed. Again, the uh, the Court of Criminal Appeals in Oklahoma found that the judge's reasoning for dismissing her was sound and, um, you know, Glossop's jury was was a fair one. Right. So, um, and then he also, apparently the attorneys alleged that um, if Mr. Fornerat was uh, ineffective for not using the videotape of Justin Sneed's interview, then these attorneys didn't use it. They were uh, ineffective, and therefore, I get a new trial. And, of course, the Court of Appeal, Court of Criminal Appeal said, no, not so fast. Um, they found overall that Fornerat was ineffective. It wasn't just not using the videotape. He didn't use information from the videotape. What these attorneys did was used information from the videotape to question both Sneed and Bemo without actually playing the entire videotape, which actually would have probably done more harm than good for Glossop. Because while Sneed's denial is interesting and Sneed's story about um, going in the room to rob it and then accidentally killing Mr. Vantries might be helpful. When Steed starts talking about Richard Glossop hounding him to kill Mr. Vantries for days and days and days, that's going to hurt. Right. Um, so, 
Uh, because and you know, and if you if you try to play just one little portion of a tape, the uh, the other either side wants to play one little portion, the other side is going to say let's play the whole thing. Makes sense. Um, but they were able to get in. You know, there there are allegations that um, inspectors Bimo and Cook, their questioning of Sneed was um, improper. Because they were telling him that Glossop's, you know, throwing him under the bus and that Glossop had been arrested and, um, you know, seeming to, appearing to be giving Snead ideas. But given what, what was corroborated that they had no knowledge of on January 14th, um, I don't think, I think that they knew based on the circumstances that Glossop was probably behind it, they they didn't know the why. They didn't know the details. Right, right. And the details that Justin Sneed gave were corroborated by other witnesses. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I mean, even, even Glossop being thrown out and Sneed getting thrown out, Sneed would have gone back to the roofing group. Because that's what he did. But with $6,000 missing from the receipts of the motel, Glossop was looking at potential criminal charges. And if Mr. Rantrese told Mr. Bender about those, you know, that plan, I wouldn't be surprised that Mr. Rantrese wasn't mad enough to tell Richard Glossop, if you don't get this together... I'm going to the cops. And Glossop prides himself on not having a criminal record. And you and I talked last week. I think that he was going, you know, he was supposedly rescuing these failing businesses. But I think once he got them back on their feet, he felt he was entitled to more than the agreed compensation that he took when he got the job. Right. And so he felt entitled to get a little here and a little there, and, you know, he's not hurting anybody. And probably real slick about it so nobody knows. And I think I've been looking at it, and I think that possibly the bonuses that he got during those six months he may have falsified that those records saying he you know did business over $18,000 a month when he really didn't cuz i don't see how you can do 18,000 a month with only 24 rooms true you know that doesn't make um, sense you know that's just doesn't make sense, you know. So right. Um, so that was the, you know that was mostly the direct appeal, and um, they affirmed the conviction. Uh, one of the biggest things on the direct appeal was claiming that there was no corroboration of Justin Sneed's testimony, and therefore there was insufficient evidence 
of murder for hire because there was no physical evidence linking Richard Glossop to the murder. But the factors that we talked about, um, Sneed's testimony was, was corroborated by the suspected theft of money, the deplorable conditions at the hotel, at the motel, Mr. Van Treese's saying he was going to take care of things. Mr. Van Treese is saying that Richard Glossop was going to get fired and possibly reported to the police. And Mr. Glossop's possession of about $1,200 that he could not account for by the sale of his personal items and his payroll. Right. You know, I mean, his payroll, he was making 1500 a month. And he had free rent and utilities. But he was taking draws against his salary to get through the two weeks between paychecks. And in fact, he had $211 uh, in draws between his check, his last check in December, and the January 6th check that Mr. Van Trees gave him the day before. So his net on January 6th was only like $423. He went to Walmart and went shopping while Mr. Van Trees is missing, but before his car is found. And he bought himself a pair of glasses and he bought an engagement ring for Deanna Wood, his girlfriend. So right. he spent all but about $60 of his paycheck. Um, the statements Deanna Wood gave to police and the te- her testimony at trial was that she didn't think he was able to save money, and they were both living paycheck to paycheck, even with no rent and utilities. Hmm. So, really? um, and so the, just his possession of that money which is consistent with what Justin Sneed says was in the car and what Justin Sneed says he and Richard Glossop split. When Sneed was arrested, he had about $1,900. Additionally, when Sneed was arrested, he told police where to find his bloody clothes back at the motel. So... He told police about evidence they weren't even aware of. Right. Um, And then also, finally, Glossop's fingerprints weren't on the plexiglass that he admits, or anywhere around the window that he admits he helped Justin Sneed put up. So he was careful or he wore gloves. Huh. Okay. And if he was inside the hotel room, as Justin Sneed claimed that he was, he was careful or he wore gloves. That doesn't take a rocket scientist. Yeah. So um, the, the Oklahoma uh, Court of Criminal Appeals found that 
there was sufficient corroboration on the money alone. Because Sneed had no independent knowledge of the money under the seat of the of the vehicle. Right, right. Um, now Wayne Fornerat has been on social media. There was apparently twenty three thousand or twenty four thousand dollars found in the trunk of Mr. Van Treese's car. Glossop's advocates claim that Donna Van Treese denied any knowledge of the money and said it wasn't theirs. So Fornerat has invented this story of Cliff Everhart, Barry Ventries having Cliff Everhart rob a drug dealer. And so Cliff Everhart robs the drug dealer, and then the drug dealer comes after Van Treese and kills Van Treese. Or Sneed kills Van Treese for the drug dealer. Or some crazy wild speculative scenario. Um, right. I was watching a video and apparently Donna Van Treese didn't know the 23000 was in the car or in the trunk of the car. However, she said that there was a balloon payment coming up on the motel properties and that Barry Vantries had been squirreling away money to make the balloon payment. Right. So um, that, and then, you know, there's this wild scenario because it has, some of the bills have like blue dye on them. But, you know, you're in a low rent area motel that probably rent some rooms out by the hour. Um, you're not getting, you know, upper crust clientele charging on their American Express black black cards. You know, you're getting people who maybe they did rob a bank somewhere at some point in time. You know, but that doesn't mean that Barry Van Treese sent Cliff Everhart to rob a drug dealer. So, um, eventually, the the direct appeal was decided, and uh, Glossop's conviction and sentence were affirmed. Uh, the rest of his post-conviction, he actually raised more or less the same claims in state post-conviction as he raised in the uh, direct appeal. Ineffective assistance, failing to use a videotape, failing to use a... Um, a competency evaluation of Justin Sneed to impeach him at trial, um, which more likely than not wouldn't have even been admissible. Um, so his state post-conviction application was denied, and the Court of Criminal Appeals affirmed that denial. Then he moves on to federal court. He raised most of the same claims However, he tried to couch them in terms of federal law rather than just state law. And federal habeas relief was denied as well. Um, some of the claims 
were basically procedurally barred because he didn't raise them as federal constitutional claims in state court. And the rule in federal habeas appeal, especially since uh, EDPA, is that you have to give the state courts an opportunity to recognize the error that occurred and fix it. And that means if you think you've got an Eighth Amendment violation, you have to present it to the state court as an Eighth Amendment violation. Or a Sixth Amendment violation or whatever. You can't argue it to the state court one way and then come to federal court and because it didn't work in state court the way you argued it, attach the U.S. Constitution to it and say you have to grant me relief because this is horrible. It's not how it works. Um, so, And then they reviewed the claims on the merits and from you know, most of the same reasons uh, as the the state courts, they found that Glossop was not entitled to federal habeas relief, which means the state court, after looking at his claimed errors, looking at what he presented in support of those errors, and analyzing the law and facts, found Richard Glossop had a fair trial in 2004. Right. And that his conviction and sentence did not occur due to a constitutional violation or violation of his constitutional rights. So at that point, it is 2013 and Glossop's federal appeals. uh, The Fifth Circuit affirmed the, the district court's decision. And so Glossop's post conviction claims, appeals, whatever you want to call them, are exhausted. Because you only get one bite at the apple. Right. So, um, of course, in 2013-2014, the makers of uh, pentobarbital sedatives, uh, didn't want their drugs being used in execution, so they either stopped making them or stopped selling them to Departments of Correction. Oklahoma revised its execution protocol to use midazolam, which is a Sedative, tranquilizer right? and anti-anxiety medication. Okay. That's used for it's used for light sedation in medical procedures. Right. Um, and uh, it's kind of it's almost like um, almost like Versed, where you just don't remember crap. <laughs> you just <laughs> you get a shot. It takes effect, you kind of float away, and then you're done. Um, okay. They, in 2014, Oklahoma switched to midazolam, which was available and they could they could get. 
on April 29, 2014, Clayton uh, Lockett was executed. And uh, I think we talked about this on one of our episodes. Prior to his execution, he did a number on his arms to damage his veins. He apparently had a history as a drug user as well. So his veins probably weren't in the best of shape uh, to begin with. And so uh, prior to his execution, they had a very difficult time establishing a patent line with which to administer any of the drugs. And in fact, at one point, um, he did have a line infiltration where the needle goes through the vein and into the tissue. And they apparently didn't catch that infiltration. And so everything was being injected, not into the bloodstream, but into the muscle. Uh-huh. And none of these drugs are meant to be intramuscular. Um, so that was a problem. Oklahoma kind of suspended all executions, did an investigation. Um, they revised their protocol to handle uh, situations in which getting a vein or establishing a good line becomes a problem. Because I think with Lockett's execution, they didn't have a procedure or a, a plan B to follow. So they got a plan B together. And um, they also, in September of 2014, elected to continue using midazolam. At that point, Richard Glossop got an execution date of November 20th, 2014. However, on October 13th, the state realized that they were uh, having issues with drug supply. So the state attorney general requested stays. And Glossop's uh, November 20th execution was stayed. Uh-huh. On October 24th, clemency was denied. Um, his execution was going to be reset. They just didn't know when. And in December of 2014, Glossop went on a two-week hunger strike. Then... Uh, They finally, I think they finally got their drug supply issue resolved, and so they set Glossop's execution for January 29, 2015. Um, The chronology now gets a little um, crazy. Uh, The Glossop versus Gross case was filed, I believe, in the federal district court in January of 2015. It may have been filed earlier though. In district court and then it went to the 10th circuit and then the January 13th date may be the writ to the Supreme Court. Um on January 15th, Charles Warner was executed and there were some issues with that execution. As with Lockett so there was a lot of furor over that. 
Um, it wasn't botched right. because they died. Okay, it it was um, it was more. There were complications during the execution that led to the person being executed suffering some pain during the process. Um, uh-huh. But it, if it's botched, they'd be alive and healthy. Um, also, at some point in January 2015, Sister Helen Prejean, in response to a letter written to her by Glossop, goes to the prison in Oklahoma to meet with Glossop. And she's going to help him get off death row because she knows he's innocent because there's no evidence tying him to that room and proving that he had anything to do with Barry Vantrese's murder. And Justice Need is just a liar and was saving his own butt from the death penalty. Uh, she reaches out to an attorney in Colorado named Don Knight, and he begins investigating Glossop's case. Glossop was scheduled for execution on January 29th, but on January 28th, the U.S. Supreme Court granted cert in Glossop versus Gross, which was filed on behalf of multiple Oklahoma death row inmates, and it stayed all pending executions. So okay. even though in Killing Richard Glossop, the impression is given that Sister Helen's intercession worked a miracle, uh-huh. the U.S. Supreme Court likely had no clue that Sister Helen had anything to do with Richard Glossop's case. They decided to stay based on not even the merits of the claims themselves, but that they raised arguments that should be resolved and issues that should be resolved by the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. Um, Just like people saying, you know, Rodney Reed getting a stay of execution, the Court of Criminal Appeals knows he's innocent. Well, no, they're not addressing the merits of his claims. They're just saying he's framed the claims in a way that he should have a chance to develop and present them. But whether he ultimately is entitled to relief is going to depend on what he develops and presents. And, you know, and also another thing that you got to look at is the federal habeas court is not just going to look at Richard Glossop's claims in a vacuum and ignore the trial and ignore the evidence at trial, ignore the prior appeals, ignore the records of those those proceedings. The federal district court is going to review everything and look at Glossop's claims and whether they undermine confidence in what was presented at his trial. Right. And undermine confidence in the verdict. Or whether he presents claims that prove that there was some constitutional error at his trial. So, um, 
on June 29, 2015, Glossop versus Gross was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. Five justices found that the plaintiffs in the case or petitioners in the case did not meet their burden because they did not – all their arguments regarding the dazzling and whether it was an effective uh, effective for use in ex- executions, they failed to provide an alternative alternative method that the states could use. Uh-huh. Because capital punishment execution has never been declared unconstitutional since it was reinstated after Greg versus Georgia. Um, so if you're going to challenge the method that a state uses to execute convicted murderers, you have to provide some alternative method that would be acceptable. Okay. Um, I think they also found that, you know, the, the claims about midazolam were, um, not really basically what's used in executions is a dose that is significantly higher than the therapeutic dose that would be used in a hospital setting. Right. So right. if you get, you know, 10 milligrams in the hospital, you're going to get 500 on the execution gurney. Texas has gone to a single drug overdose. Uh-huh. So, right. you know, they're Tell they're giving you they're, the 500 milligram dose of midazolam, I think in and of itself would kill. But yeah. um so uh and then after Glossop versus Gross was decided, Glossop's execution was reset for September 15th um, at the last possible minute, I think on or around the second week in September, Glossop's new attorneys filed, and one of his old attorneys who's been representing him for years, um, filed subsequent and supplemental post-conviction writs in state court and Mm -hmm. um, we're already at almost 10 o'clock now and to go through all those claims um, basically what they did was they quote reinvestigated the case so they found witnesses who claimed Justin Sneed told them that he lied about Richard Glossop being involved to save his own ass or because he was proud of himself for setting Richard Glossop up or, um, you know, a variety of reasons. They had a former cohort of Bobby Glossop testifying about how Justin Sneed was a meth head and would break into cars and break into rooms and steal to support his drug habit. And they had a, a psychologist who said, um, you know, when people had to tell Justin Sneed to eat, it was because he was a meth head. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, 
at some point, they even got they, a supporter of Glossop's got a letter from a person by the name of Orion Justine Sneed that said she had visited her father, and he said that he knew he lied about Richard Glossop. He wanted to recant his testimony, but he was afraid that if he recanted his testimony, he would get the death penalty. And he felt really bad about this, and Richard Glossop is actually innocent. Well, the Frontier did a little digging, and the number on the letter for Orion Justine Sneed went to a California escort service. Oh, well, I'll be damned. And um, the attorneys for Glossop were never able to produce a declaration which is sworn or an affidavit which is sworn to and signed before notary public um, to present this this information to court because courts don't take letters. You know, it's it's uh-huh. not a it's not a sworn declaration of proper a proper uh, pleading to be filed in support of a post conviction motion. And um, so, the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals, because of the late filing of these new claims, um, had to grant a two week stay. And it reset Glossop's execution for September 30th, 2015. Okay. Um, Glossop's attorney supplemented, I believe one of the other arguments they made, is that all the claims about the shortages at the motel were false, that there were never any shortages at the motel, that Glossop was as honest as the day is long and would never, ever, 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 ever has stolen any money from anybody at any time during his life because well, he was just not. such he's a good guy. Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, and, and, you know, I think the, the argument was advanced that, you know, this is a cash business. If he wanted to steal, he could have, you know, collected three days worth of receipts, gotten in his car and driven away. And he would have had a lot of money. Why would he steal drips and drabs here and there? Well, that's hoping you don't get caught. Um, so a, on the 28th of September, the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals dismissed Glossop's subsequent post-conviction claims, denied his request for hearings, um, denied everything. And so his execution was set to go forward on the 30th of September. Uh, I request for a stay was filed with the U.S. Supreme Court, which was denied on September 29th. So on September 30th, he's got his third date. He's already been in death watch for a month. He gets his last meal. And at some point prior to them bringing him to the execution room, officials in Oklahoma discover that they have gotten the wrong drug. And they discover that they got the wrong drug for Charles Warner, which uh-huh. is likely why there were problems during his execution. 
Um, right. There is some. It appears that the uh, attorney for the governor initially thought that they could go ahead and use the wrong drug. But uh, wiser heads prevailed, and in light of getting the wrong drug, the governor granted a stay of execution on the 30th of September. So Glossop was not executed. Right. Um, You know, they discovered the problem initially. They thought, we can still do it. It's okay. But somebody said, no, I really think this is a bad idea. There was a grand jury investigation. The um, head of the pri- the head of the prison in McAllister resigned after giving her testimony. The head of the Department of Corrections resigned after giving his testimony, and the attorney for the governor resigned after giving his testimony. There was a bit of a shakeup. Um. You know, apparently somebody should go not deal with that particular compounding pharmacy ever again and find a new pharmacy to get your your drugs from. Um, During all this brouhaha, the Oklahoma legislature passed a law that would allow nitrogen hypoxia to be used as an alternative method of execution. Okay. Um, if you ever went to the dentist and you got nitrous oxide, you know what I'm talking about. And I have had one situation where um, I kind of remember them getting a little excited and taking the mask off my nose. Uh huh. And kind of, you know, waking me up and, and making me talk to them. Because apparently they realized I was getting too much nitrogen and not enough oxygen. Oh, really? But this, I think, I think this might not be nitrous oxide. I might think this might be straight nitrogen. Huh. I'm not sure if they're going to do nitrous oxide. Yeah, it's the it's mixture... Is too much nitrogen, not enough oxygen. You you basically you suffocate. It's hypoxia. Did no oxygen go to your your brain and you know you die. Um, yeah. And you know I I had terrible experiences as a child with a dentist who was basically having us come in every weekend. And he was filling healthy teeth because we had dental insurance through Aetna. Uh-huh. And when we went to the orthodontist years later and he was looking at the x-rays, he's like, why so many fillings? And my mother said, well, they, they had really bad teeth. And he said, no, they don't. He said, no, no, they haven't been to the dentist in a couple of years. And, you know, they don't have a single cavity, any of them. Right. They didn't have bad teeth. You had a bad dentist. 
So <laughs> I don't, I can't even go in without, I, I can't even have my teeth cleaned without nitrous oxide. Hmm. Okay. Because I, I will go, you know, from the chair to the ceiling. I've made dental hygienists cry because I have such a hard time and they feel so bad for me. And I get the anxiety, you know, that I, I can't do that. I can't do this. You got to stop. They, they get like one, I would have before nitrous oxide, I would have one quarter and that would be all I could take. Right. And then I have to go back the next week and get the next quarter and then the next quarter and the next quarter. So cleaning my teeth wasn't one visit. It was four. But once I found a dentist that did nitrous oxide, I was like, yeah, do whatever you want. (laughs) I have no problem. (laughs) Um, So right now, as it stands in Oklahoma, the state is trying to implement the nitrogen hypoxia method. Um, they have been unable to obtain the equipment, however, to administer the gas. Um, so, and I, I'm I'm guessing that there's been some pressure on dental supply people. So, um, I read an article recently that said if they can't buy it. They're going to build it. Hmm. Really? And so, uh, but right now, I, I think they, they've had problems with the pharmacy, so they're, um, they're not going to be, what was, what, what was wrong was potassium acetate instead of potassium chloride. Right. And it's – it, it has the same effect, but I don't think pa- potassium acetate works as quickly. Because I think the problems with Charles Warner's execution was that it took a long time, uh, which if he's not getting the right drug. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a food acidity regulator. That's what they're trying to get? No, that's what they got by mistake. What they're trying to get is potassium chloride. Ah, okay. Which is... It's it's actually used in therapeutic doses. It can prevent low blood levels of potassium, but in executions, it's used to stop the heart. Huh. Okay. Now I I I may be. Let me see. Yeah, potassium chloride used to stop the the heart. Pavlon is a muscle, pancurium bromide is a muscle paralysis. 
which causes respiratory arrest. Potassium chloride stops the heart, and then so it's the sodium thiopental that they couldn't get. So they switched to midazolam. Okay. So, and interestingly enough, um, four years later, Don Knight has not filed anything in court. He has not brought forth any new evidence. He has not brought forth any new witnesses. Um, I suspect that when a new date is set, they will wait until the last possible minute, and they will file additional claims with, quote, new evidence and new witnesses. Um, And, you know, one of the things... I think that the public doesn't understand is actually post-conviction is not the stage to litigate guilt or innocence. Right. Um, Everything that they tried to bring forth about Justin Sneed, it's all based on information that was known in 1997 and 1998 and even 2004. It's, you know, aside from the people claiming that Sneed admitted to um, naming Glossop just to get his own ass out of trouble, um, you know, they, everything was dealing with and, – and the motel and the people at the motel and the things at the motel, those are all things that were known to Richard Glossop. Right. So if his attorneys didn't know about him – that's on him. Hmm, true. Cause, and they were all things, you know, the $23,000 in the trunk. It could have been investigated in 1997. It could have been investigated in 1998. It could have been investigated up to, you know, 2004, the trial. Um, and if there was some nefarious circumstances those could have been used as part of Glossop's defense. Absolutely. His fault. But, it, you know, that, that didn't happen. Once again, and, uh, I, when you say these things, it's kind of like, I, I'm like, if you're fighting, if I'm fighting for my life, I'm not going to forget something. You know what I'm saying? Right. Correct. And, um, you know, and, like I said, that's all these arguments could have been made in 1997, 1998, 2004, and that they weren't is not – what they'll do, and, and we saw this with Rodney Reed, what they'll often do when they get the late information, they try to say the prosecution had it and didn't turn it over. And we saw it in the West Memphis Three about the night right. late. They said witnesses told uh, the West Memphis Police the knife had been in the lake for weeks before the murder. And then when they test, when those witnesses testify at the hearing, they say, "Yeah, the knife was in there because Baldwin's mother threw it in there, and he was really good at her for it." Uh-huh. And his his execution date was September 16th, 2015. 
his attorneys filed their successive application on September 15th, 2015. Wow. So they had no choice but to grant a stay because they couldn't resolve and it was the 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 applications were hundreds of pages. Well, and the sad fact is, Lisa, and I've only heard in the long time we've been doing this show, I've only heard of one single time, one time that anybody's ever gotten in trouble for filing these things last moment just to freaking, just to freaking, you know, save somebody. Yeah, David Dow got in trouble in Texas. Um, However, he also uh, led to Judge Sharon Keller having an issue. And a lot of media publicity about Sharon Keller. The story is she wouldn't hold the courthouse open for 15 minutes so an attorney could file a late brief. But when all the facts were looked at by the court, they found that the, uh, the, the convicted guy's attorneys were the ones that were at fault. They were giving inconsistent stories about why they couldn't file on time. Um, they were contacting the clerk's office and Keller when they should have been contacting whichever judge was responsible for for late filing and late application. Right, right. Because there's a judge, there is a judge assigned who takes those last-minute things. And, hell, we saw with Sedley Alley, freaking federal public defender attorneys went to the the judges, the Sixth Circuit judge's house and got him to sign an emergency stay. So why didn't they go to one of the judges, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, go to his house, give him the stay, get him to sign it. Um, So, you know, and like there was no, the stories they gave were inconsistent as to why they were having problems getting it on time. But they weren't calling the right people or talking to the right people to get something filed late. And so everybody comes down on on Sharon Keller for not keeping the courthouse open. But, you know, these attorneys, they they know the procedure. And they're not following it. And the reason, you know, that's why they're not getting the answer. And I personally think that they knew it had no merit and they didn't want to file it. And so they decided to go the wrong route and then cry about it when, you know, to, to make, it made better publicity. Of course. So, um, or they'll raise some of these issues again um, and try to uh, re-argue the issues yet again. 
So, um, also, as we saw with Roger Coleman, um, you're not entitled to state post-conviction counsel. And so you cannot make claims for state post-conviction counsel. Errors of state law, such as denial of DNA testing, are not subject to federal habeas corpus. Right. Um, But, like I said, the myth of no, you know, he was convicted solely based on Justin Sneed's testimony. That is absolutely categorically false. Justin Sneed's testimony was corroborated by Donna Van Treese, conditions at the hotel, the testimony of multiple uh, people at the hotel, William Bender, as well as Glossop's possession of money that was half of the motel receipts picked up by Barry Van Treese on January 6th. And in his vehicle, which Justin Sneed had no, um, no knowledge of. Uh-huh. Justin Steed had met Barry, Barry Ventries three times. Had barely spoken two words to him. Huh. Um, and they they also are under the mistaken impression that if they find enough witnesses to say and tell enough reporters that the case they totally eviscerated the state's case that they, um, you know, a court has to grant relief. And that just isn't how it works. Because even when they're looking at your alleged evidence that eviscerates the state's case, they are looking at the state's case. Right. And, you know, you really have to come up with some pretty strong stuff to uh, overcome that. Right. And I've noticed more and more that um, when you read the post-conviction petitions, it's a lot of speculation. You know, that this, this guy did this because of that. This guy said this because of that even though nowhere in the trial record and nowhere in the record they present have they asked so-and-so why they did something or said something. Right. You know, the the spin that they put on the information, like in Rodney Reed saying that, you know, all the forensic evidence, all the forensic evidence has been, you know, destroyed, that it's medically and scientifically impossible for Rodney Reed to to have committed the murder. Well, no, that's not true. You know, the the letters you claim retract forensic testimony at trial do not retract the forensic testimony at trial. The witnesses have not recanted their testimony. 
Uh-huh. And they did it with swearing, and we talked about that last week. The Fifth Circuit included the letters and very pointedly said what Mr. Swearingen's counsel claimed the letters say and what the letters actually actually say are very different things. Right. Um, and Glossop's even got – apparently gotten an, an accountant to say there were never any shortages. That Donna Van Trees was using the wrong report to determine the income uh-huh. or something along those lines. I mean, it's just it's it's uh, it's kind of insane. Mm-hmm. But that becomes a narrative, you know. Um, as I told you last week, we did get a message on the Facebook page uh, uh-huh. from Bree, yeah. who I actually that. I think was surprised that we weren't boo hoo hoo he's innocent, don't kill him. Um, right. And we were providing information that is usually not provided because uh-huh. they very rarely mention the, the deplorable condition of the hotel, motel. Right. Um, and, you know, Glossop, when you listen to him talking to Joe Berlinger, you think the place was the Taj friggin' Mahal. Because he acts like, you know, I was working on it. I was doing all this. I had done a lot of stuff. I had gotten a lot done. It was looking a lot better than when I got there. So. Right. <laughs> you know. If you watch Killing Richard Glossop, I have Prime, so I watch it on Prime. Um, it uh, it's just you know the self-serving statements from a convicted murderer don't carry a lot of weight with me. And I would have sure. I would have expected journalists to use a little bit more common sense you know yes get his story let him tell his story but verify it before you repeat it Uh and if you find something that contradicts what he's telling you that's probably the truth and with Richard Glossop it's his Justin Steed's testimony was corroborated by the $1,200 Glossop had in his pocket that he could not account for with the sale of his belongings from his little probably one-room, one-bath apartment behind a motel office. Right, right. Um, You know, it's not like he had a three-bedroom house and he had you know, Ethan Allen furniture that he could sell, you know, every piece for $1,000. Right. Um, so, no. And I think during the shopping trip on January 7th, I think he spent more money. He just didn't volunteer the other items he bought, and he didn't keep receipts 
so people would know what he bought. Right. So, um, but yeah, he's, I mean, he, he was in, his ass was in a crack. He was afraid of getting thrown out and having nowhere to go and losing Deanna Wood. Because she was only with him for what he could give her. He was madly in love, but trust me, babe, she was not. Huh. A 19-year-old girl with a 33-year-old man. Come on. As long as you can be sugar daddy and give her whatever her little heart desires. And that's why they were living paycheck to paycheck. Because he was giving her whatever her little heart desired. Right. And she didn't have the independence to be like, no, I'm going to go make my own money. She worked at the hotel and helped him, didn't get paid for it. Right. They were right next door to a McDonald's. Deanna could have taken her little booty over to McDonald's, got herself a job at McDonald's. She would have never been late for work because she was just a few hundred feet Right. And then they both would have been, you know, they both would have had their own money. Um, but, I, you know, like I said, he didn't want to lose her. And he certainly didn't want to be arrested. And that's the other reason I believe that during his prior uh, jobs that he was taking money. And when he got caught, he was allowed to just leave. And not suffer any consequences. And Bree did send me an autobiography that Glossop had written. Um, And it was very, you know, it was very self-serving. And then she also sent me a link to a letter. Unfortunately, the the platform, um, I wasn't able to print the letter. And it was kind of hard to read on the screen for me, uh, but I'm I'm going to keep trying. Um, where he okay. actually is trying to throw Deanna under the bus and say huh. that he had nothing to do with Barry Ventries. She was in the room with Justin. Of course, there's no evidence placing her in the room with Justin. And this is another issue with the um, innocence narratives is often they they are mutually exclusive. So even though there's no evidence placing Deanna Wood in the room with Barry Ventrice and Justin Sneed, Richard Glossop can say she was there and everybody will believe him. True. They even had a they had an affidavit or a declaration from Deanna Wood saying they never had money problems. I kind of huh. wish they'd gotten a hearing on that one because when she when she comes if she comes into that hearing to testify, the the prosecutor would have been all over her because she testified at the trial and she testified that they had money problems. They testified he couldn't save money. Right. They te- she testified that he li- they live paycheck to paycheck. 
And I think she testified about the giving her uh, a, a nice car, an engagement ring, a baby, and boobies by the time she was 25. Right. Thank God. I thank God I was not that. I was not there when I was 19. <laughs> no lie. I had that opportunity. I was well. I was about 22. I had that opportunity. But I was like, yeah, no. <laughs> we can be friends, but I don't like you that much. <laughs> So, you know, keep your apartment in Ethan Allen furniture. Right. And uh, I was driving an old Oldsmobile Omega too. Now, if you if you if he'd offered me a car, that might have sweetened the pie. But he wasn't offering me a car. <laughs> right. Right. So. <clears throat> But yeah, so that's Richard Glossop. Um, four years, and they haven't filed any new evidence. Um, they probably won't. They'll wait till the day before his next execution is scheduled, uh, if Oklahoma is able to resolve their issues with methods. Um, speaking of which, we're still waiting on Stacy Johnson to see how the Arkansas. Methods and protocol are going to fare with the federal judge okay. there. Um, I checked the docket a couple weeks ago, and there still wasn't any any decision. The trial did conclude, but there's still no decision. So I will I will check um, his appeal for denial of DNA testing was argued, and I'll check and see if that's been decided yet either. Okay. So, but yeah, that's where Richard Glossop stands. So, you know, final word, he's guilty. He right. wanted to get his beyond own ass out of a crack. A beyond a shadow of a doubt. Well, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. And the time for reasonable doubt was at his trial in 2004. Right, right. Reasonable right. doubt is out the window. Even if you have reasonable doubt or Joe Blow out there listening has re- reasonable doubt, or another Richard is listening and has reasonable doubt. Um, even if the media says there's reasonable doubt, that doesn't, doesn't Mean apply that anymore. Yeah. Right. Any evidence that the defense puts forth to try to get a new trial or to to try to prove that he's actually innocent, they're going to look at that against the evidence at the trial. And a lot of times what happens is that the evidence at trial, what they're presenting doesn't even affect the evidence at trial. Because um, the the statements about Justin Steed saying he lied, well, all those witnesses, that's all hearsay. Justin Steed is alive and well and could testify and if he wanted to recant, he could tell somebody he wants to recant, and then they could bring him bring him in and have him recant. And I think that that's what Mr. Birch got his butt in trouble for, was that right. he was in, making an effort to get 
folks need to recant. And Sneed wasn't wasn't going for it. Um, there is a possibility if he were to recant, there might be repercussions as far as his sentence goes because he pled guilty and accepted life in prison without possibility of parole. However, I think it would be highly unusual and probably not pass constitutional muster for the state of Oklahoma to actually vacate the life without parole and have a death penalty trial. Right. A death penalty sentencing. Um, maybe they could, they might have to, con- they might have to vacate his plea though. And then they'd have to try him. Oh, there's one issue I forgot to mention. In uh-huh. 1999, apparently, evidence was destroyed by the Oklahoma City Police Department when it was being transferred from the DA's office back to the police department for custody. Um, apparently, in 2004, prior to Glossop's second trial, His defense did not seek to examine or test or know anything about any of that evidence. It was some physical evidence from the motel room where where Mr. Ventrice was killed. And there was some some of the evidence taken out of the car or evidence that was in the room. Um, It was a receipt book and a ledger of some kind or something along those lines. I suspect though that those two items would have been copied and provided to Glossop's defense at the 1998 trial. The physical evidence would have been sampled and the samples would probably have been somewhere else so that they could have been subjected to additional testing. And if I recall correctly, in 2003, there was some evidence subjected to additional testing uh-huh. at the request of the defense. Um, but I can't seem to find what those results might have been. I suspect because they didn't ex- they didn't exculpate Richard Glossop. Not finding his evidence, not finding evidence of him present in the room, it's not going to exculpate him. Because the nature of a murder for hire is he's not going to be in the room. And a nature of the murder for hire of a murder for hire most of the time is only two people know. The hirer and the hiree. And so there's no witnesses and and, you know he's not he's, he's cagey enough not to go around like telling Deanna yeah, Justin's going to kill Barry Ventrice, and then baby, we're going to be set. He's not going to say, you know, he's going to be smart enough to keep that to himself. Right. Um, so some of that evidence, the evidence was destroyed in 1999. The Don Knight got a report detailing that occurrence in 2015 from the Oklahoma City Police Department. Um but 
again, why wouldn't Glossop's counsel have even asked about that evidence before the trial? Right. Why wasn't Absolutely. Birch asking about that evidence as soon as a retrial was ordered? I agree. Um, and I, the impression I get is it's the physical evidence, but sampling and examination of that evidence had been done, and the results of that remain available. Mm-hmm. So, um, but uh, I think they tried testing the wallet because there was an allegation that Glossop took a hundred dollar bill out of uh, Ventrice's wallet. Okay. So yeah, so he's you know he's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, his guilt is final. And he bears the burden now of presenting clear and convincing evidence of his actual innocence. No question. And he has had, right, he has had his original state post-conviction writ. He's had a successive writ, which was supplemented um, at least once. perhaps twice, when his initial writ, when the 2015 writ was denied, he filed a motion to reconsider, which isn't proper procedure. And, you know, that was all denied. The Oklahoma uh, Court of Criminal Appeals denied it. He would have to get permission from the Tenth Circuit to file a subsequent habeas claim and for years he's probably not going to get that because if he brings all this evidence from 2015 in there is a statute of limitations right you have to file within a certain period of time of discovery of that evidence and he discovered that evidence in 2015. It's now 2019. Hmm. True. So, um, but I, I think all they wanted to do was to disrupt the execution. Yeah, and, pretty much. And like Swearingen and Willingham get the narrative out there of an innocent man being put to death and read. Um, and, you know, ignoring anything that contradicts that image. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, um, so that's Richard Glossop. He's, you know, he thinks he's, he's special. Or he thinks he's special. Yeah, that too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's about the best you can say. He's mm-hmm. special. Yeah. So, all right, well, it's, oh, well, that's why I forgot we started a half an hour later. Yeah, I was freaking out when I saw it was quarter to ten. I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. 
We didn't do too bad today. No, no. And I saw a local, uh, a former news anchor for one of the, uh-huh. the stations in town was at our night our night out gathering in really? my subdivision. Yeah, I didn't. I had no idea he lived here. <clears throat> I thought he lived across the lake with all. Most of the other, you know, anchors either live across the lake or in mid city and uptown. Uh-huh. And I was I was shocked. I was like, Oh my gosh. We have somebody who actually live in on the West Bank. Cause somebody's famous over here. So all right. Well let's put a bow on this baby. Let's do it. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien LN. Join us next week, October Tuesday, October 22nd, 2019 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for episode 35. State of Arkansas versus Aaron Lewis and Crystal Lowry. In 2016, Lewis was convicted of capital murder in connection with the abduction and murder of real estate agent Beverly Carter. We'll talk about the case against Lewis, Lowry's guilty plea in 2015, Lewis's trial, and his direct appeal. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.